think about it. We've still got some of the other rights. You know, when a child is born, we celebrate that. And when when someone joins up with someone else in union in their adult life, we celebrate that. And then, mm-hmm. of course, when someone dies, we acknowledge that. But the rite of passage that used to be given the most time and attention within a community is the puberty rite. And that's the one that's largely been lost. One in four of our teenage girls by the age of 14 is self-harming. Mm-hmm. That's 100,000 girls in just in the UK. Yeah. And that's got to change. And we can change it. Hello, this is Dr. Rowe, and you are listening to The Cicado Show with Dr. Rowe and Harms. Cicado means to seek turning points. And on this show, where two completely different generations tackle the most challenging topics that people are facing today, the mission is to provide you with what you need in order to create a turning point in your life now. Above all else, the main reason that we chose to create these shows is because we both have a passion for helping people go through life transformation, for improving their lives, for taking their lives to a completely different level. And it's our hope, our genuine sincere hope, that by the end of each of these episodes, you will have gained at least one insight which you can take away and apply directly into your life. Practical tools, Voices that come from both generations, younger generation with tips and tools, older generation with a sense of wisdom and experience. So you can help unlock your true potential to give you the opportunity to make changes both on a personal, professional, financial and relationship level. To give you a chance to impact both your life and the lives of other people around you. So we welcome you. We welcome you to The Cicado Show. Before we jump into the show, let me just tell you a little bit about becoming a Cicado supporter now. If you love what we do on the show, have gained transformational insights and positive outcomes or any small shifts which have allowed you to create turning points in your life, then please head to cicado.com and become a supporter of the show now. By supporting the show, we can continue to expand by getting you better quality production, spending more time deep diving important topics and creating more exclusive supporter perks as well as getting great guests on. And by the way, as a thank you for becoming a supporter and depending on which supporter tier you select at cicado.com, these perks range from my weekly recipe for success emails through to audios and video courses from my 23 steps to success, which includes online modules on how to find your life balance, gaining confidence, improving your time management, making successful career transitions, understanding financial independence, creating a life purpose, understanding and how to manage your money, becoming a money master, understanding negotiation techniques, learning to communicate more effectively and so much more. So don't delay. It takes less than two minutes and you can become a Cicado supporter, helping to expand the show and get special perks as a thank you. Become a supporter now at Cicado.com. Let's get back to the show. Hello, it's Harms here and welcome to another episode of the Cicado show. Now, I'm going to paint a slightly dark picture as we introduce this, but as we go through the episode, I'm hoping that we come into the light. Now, right now, a lot of talk has taken place in the media around how children and our teenagers are being impacted by current events. At time of recording, we've got the coronavirus, COVID uh, floating through the world. And 
what's been spoken about in the media specifically is how this has led to our children being cooped up at home, disrupted education, being socially isolated from their friends, cousins, other family members. But what's not spoken about enough, if at all, is how can we take care and support our children during this time? The reality is COVID has magnified the issue, but the sad reality is the issue isn't new. It's been around for a very long time, which we shall discover today. Now, to help us navigate this subject, we're fortunate to be joined by a special guest who is a child expert and has been working in this field for many, many years. I'm going to say 30 years based on my prep, but I'm hoping our guest can correct me there. So with this in mind, Ro, over to you to introduce our special guest today. Thank you, Harms, and thank you, everybody, for joining us on today's podcast. I am again excited, but even more excited because actually Kim is a neighbor of mine (laughs) within throwing distance of where we live, which is amazing to have somebody with her stature and and experience, but also, you know, globally such reach to to be in a community that we have. It is a real privilege. And that's really how I came to be able to invite her on today. But let me give you a formal introduction first, and then we'll, I'll, I'll soften it a little bit with my experience of what I know about Kim. So Kim's the founder and director of Rights for Girls, which is a community interest company and a mother of three, which I think is important for those of you that are listening, because sometimes, you know, we'll hear people out there that teach and talk about a subject, but they're not actually experiencing it themselves. They're just doing it from knowledge. But we're talking about somebody that's had a lot of experience as a mother. Um, She's the author of From Daughter to Woman, Parenting Girls Safely Through Their Teens. Now, If I just say that slowly, if you're a parent right now listening to this, you'll be thinking, oh my gosh, I need to read that book. From daughter to woman, just think about that, even as a statement, parenting girls safely through their teens. I've got a daughter who's 12, and that's another reason that I'm connected through to Kim because she attends one of her groups. And this transition is is an unbelievably volatile period for a child, but for parents as well, knowing how to manage it. So over the years, Kim's experience has led her to become you know, a child expert interviewed by the BBC, Sky News. She studied child psychology at Cambridge University, was a counsellor to young people and taught sex education in schools and youth groups. She also is trained as an assertive trainer and five rhythms shamanic dance teacher, which for those of you that don't know what that means, maybe she could explain that to us a little bit later on. We're in a community here where, by the way, where we live, where there's so many great people with different experiences. And so when you bring these together with Kim's experience and bring that into the teaching environment, it brings a whole new dynamic. And added to that, she's also operated as a business management consultant. So for those of you that run your own businesses that maybe are parents and have this wrestling match between the dilemma of wanting to build a great business, but also be a great parent, I think that's a real conflict. And I'm sure she might talk into that space while we've got her today. I think that it's great to have somebody with that background as well. In her 20s, Kim worked as a counsellor to distressed teenagers girls were harming themselves physically and mentally. And she promised herself at a young age, and I think this is where people define their purpose quite early, uh, that she wanted to find a way to equip girls so that they could end up not endangering themselves or their well-being, which I think we're seeing more of today. And I'm sure we're going to find out more from the conversations with Kim. After 30 years of working with young people, Kim developed 
a way to give girls a robust support system, a, a method that they could use both with their parents and themselves, that they needed to see them through their teen years, which I know when I grew up, there was none of that. I think there's almost a blindness to this. We were just left to trundle through on our own. In 2011, Kim founded Rights for Girls to help girls from the age of 10 right through to into their early 20s, I suspect even older than that now, knowing that she's working with parents as well. And in 2018, Kim published her book, From Daughter to Woman, Parenting Girls Safely Through Their Teens. And we have an organic farm very close to where I live. And the first time I became aware of it actually was this a couple of years ago now, walking through and seeing a little card there on the desk. And I picked it up and I just thought, I need to read this because obviously my daughter at the time was about nine. So that's really how I started to become aware of it. Although I'd heard whispers and rumors amongst the community because Kim's very well known around here. In the girls' groups around the world, just listen to this, around the world, monthly support is offered to preteen girls as they practice being true to themselves, learn about puberty, share their hopes and their fears and help each other in their teens. And my daughter is going through that experience now. So for me, it's really close to my heart with Kim and, and uh, one of our local groups. Kim also trains women around the world now. So if you're listening to this and you're a woman who maybe be interested in this, it'd be worth reaching out to Kim afterwards. Uh, she, she trains women around the world to facilitate the girls' journey together groups, which is a growing community. And, and I think she'll probably give us an indication of how that's happening at the moment. And I'd like to finish with a, a quote from Kim. We can each make a difference. We can make the world a better place, creating community and circles of support, adults taking responsibility for guiding tomorrow's women, grounded revolution, changing the world for everybody. On a personal note, I want to just say that Kim, you know, the, the things I hear about you from other parents, and I've got a friend of mine quite close who went through a journey with, her daughter went through a journey with you about a year and a half ago. All I hear is positive things. And the fact that you're so grounded, you bring a world of knowledge, but you just wear your heart out there and everything you do is about adding value and, and giving people a chance to make a transformation. I just want to thank you for being around in this world and for bringing such a great message to to our young children. Kim McCabe, over to you. <laughs> nice to have you here. Thank you. It's really my pleasure. And um, to hear you speak about my life like that is, um, well, don't, don't I sound amazing? Well, you are. And I think it's, it's not easy to describe ourselves. And I, I just, you know, myself and Harminder always feel that it's important to explain about somebody without you having to do it so that people know just just how great you are. And I think just for everybody listening, one of the, th the lovely things about Kim is if you have a conversation with her, she, she, there's just this nature in her to want to impart some sort of wisdom that she's had in a way that gives you a chance to go away feeling a better person. And that's the sense I get. I mean, we spoke yesterday and we ended up having to break the call off because we almost got into a podcast on the phone call. <laughs> I think, Kim, you know what would be lovely is would you take us through a bit of a journey, maybe how you how did you get to this place? Take us back to a young Kim McCabe and then bring us right through to 2020 and where we are today. That'd be a lovely start to the podcast. Yeah. So, of course, as many long journeys start, it started with pain. I wasn't a comfortable little girl. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Um, I came from a relatively ordinary family, but of course, there are aspects in which I didn't get the parenting that I really needed. And out of that came um, 
a real difficulty in for me in growing up to becoming a woman. I felt like I didn't really want to become a woman. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be, but it certainly wasn't who I was. I was at, in, in kind of conflict with myself. And that's where the journey started, is my own personal journey into womanhood. And as you said, I made a promise to myself back in my 20s when I, mm. after I'd, I'd studied psychology at Cambridge and trained to be a counsellor for teens, I realised I was, I was not alone. It was really a very difficult journey to make, I think, from being a child to being an adult. We've lost that puberty rite of passage. We've lost the support that used to be given to children as they made that journey from child to adult. Think about it. We've still got some of the other rights. You know, when a child is born, we celebrate that. And when when someone joins up with someone else in union in their adult life, we celebrate that. And then, mm -hmm. of course, when someone dies, we acknowledge that. But the rite of passage that used to be given the most time and attention within a community is the puberty rite. And that's the one that's largely been lost. It's 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 still there in some religions. So I navigated that, that, that phase of my life not very well, and I want to change that. One in four of our teenage girls by the age of 14 is self-harming. Mm. That's 100,000 girls in, just in the UK, yeah. and that's got to change. And we can change it. The adults, we can do that. Parents, and um, you don't have to even be a parent. If you if you have a child in your life who you care about, you can make an enormous difference to that child in very small, simple ways. So I guess it's my own experience that got me thinking about how can this be different. And um, it wasn't until I'd had my own children and realized that parenting's really hard. Um, yeah. And I was making some of the same mistakes that I had kind of accused my own parents of and realized that actually parents need support too, to be able to do this really important job of raising the next generation. It wasn't till 2011 that I began to pull into place all the things that I'd learned, both at university, from my own life, from being a mother, to create something which is preventative work. It's it's starting with the children before they run into problems. And of course, as a parent, we're all ideally placed for that because we've got them from the very start of their lives and our influence is huge, which I don't want to feel like a burden. You know, of course, we there's a huge pressure on parents to get it right and to be perfect. And there's nothing worse than a perfect parent. Who wants a perfect parent? What kind of pressure would that be as a child? Mm, you oh can't gosh. mess up then as a child, can you, if you've, if you've exactly. got a perfect parent? So we don't have to be perfect, but we certainly have got huge influence. And there's lots of things that we can do and say that will help our children on their journey into adulthood. Just on a personal level, Kim, when you went through that journey yourself, what were some of the the values and beliefs that you embodied to make you stronger? I mean, you obviously had to develop your own coping mechanism there. Are, are any of those things that you carry forward today in your teaching? Oh, that's a big question. I think, well, it's every adult's journey, isn't it, to learn how to parent yourself. Mm. So you learn from your own parents some really important things about how to take care of yourself. However good or bad your parents are, however well-equipped they were to pass those things on. We all learn some good things and some not-so-good things about how to take care of ourselves as adults. And then our journey from there is to make up for the bits that 
weren't so well done. So to learn how to take care of ourselves even better and the bits yeah. of ourselves that that haven't perhaps been taken such good care of and we don't do so naturally, how to then take that on as our job as adults to to give ourselves what we need to be the very best person that we can be in this life, to be the to, to realize ourselves, to to do what we want to do in the world, to have the kind of relationships that we want to have. Ultimately, the, the starting point is to take the very best care of ourselves. Yeah, I think the challenge for a lot of parents is that as we grow up, we, we can only a lot of the time leverage off the experience we had as a young person. So our parents' beliefs, rules and values often become embedded into us in our first five or six years. And, and a lot of that carries all the way through, doesn't it? And, and I think if you go back 30, 40 years, 50 years, parents, well, even today, but, but even back then, people weren't really equipped with the level of consciousness that we have today. So I do think that we are becoming more conscious today. It's whether people are picking up those tools and using them. Well, um, our children are our teachers. Our yeah. children will tell us <laughs> so when we're true. getting it wrong. <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. They're more vocal today, I think, as well, aren't they? Yeah. So, I mean, just on a personal level, you know, I grew up in the 60s and my, so my father passed away when I was uh, 13 years of age and I watched my mum literally cope through two jobs and she didn't have any of this guidance that you offer to people today. And I, you know, I know there must've been a frustration in her. She had three boys, so there's three of us lads. And, um, you know, I can relate to some of the things you're saying because it was, I found myself as I grew up being almost like a sponge to trying to be, bring in new tools into my own being to learn. Are you finding at the moment that young children are more open to that? Is it something that they they want? I mean, I know we've got social media, there's a lot of information coming at kids, but do, do you think that as we go into this conversation about what you're doing, do you, do you think children are more open to it or, or do they feel like they're being pushed into wanting to learn these things? I think it's the adult's job first. Mm. I think it's our job as adults to learn how to live better first. Kids will just copy. Children are like sponges That's and so the true. way that they learn is they copy us. So actually the very best way that we can pass on to our children what we want them to know is not to tell them, but to, to show them. And I do think that adults today are more receptive and more open to mm. learning about um, how to take good care of themselves and how to to be in the world how they want to be and there's more there's more guidance available but that said because there's more guidance available it can be overwhelming yes. and it can feel it can feel you know what conflicting advice who do you follow yeah. um so much you know there's this self-help book and there's that podcast and there's you know it's a, that course that you can do and um we have to learn to be discerning we have to learn to trust our gut instincts as to what resonates with us what speaks to one person is going to be different from what what someone else needs to to hear and to learn so we have to to, to really trust ourselves to seek out the way that we need to support ourselves in our adult lives and in our parenting journey mm, that's so true amazing and now we've got a capture of your journey so far uh, just diving into the topic at hand what are the biggest challenges that you've personally seen with your coaches and team around you that young girls are facing today and it may be specifically around the current situation but like i said in the introduction my gut feel is that this isn't new this has been going on for a very long time 
So what are the biggest challenges you've seen? I think things are harder for all children growing up today than it was for us when we were growing up. The statistics bear that out too. Childline last year said that they got a an increase of 30% in calls from children with increased anxiety. That's just anxiety. So um, the pressures that children are under are greater, I believe, than we were under. And um, some of that is academic pressure. It seems that schools are under greater pressure to perform, and so therefore they pass that on to the children. There's also greater financial pressure, which um, feeds through to children, the importance of doing well at school so that they can then do well at their work. I, you know, for me as a teenager, I never thought of, I never thought about my finances, but children I'm talking to now are worrying already about being able to afford to live. And then of course there is social media. So they are open to a whole kind of world. And some of it is a wonderful world. I don't believe it is all negative, but being able to navigate that world when your parents don't necessarily know how to pass that on to you is an additional pressure. So it is harder growing up today, I think. There are greater pressures. And so we are seeing um, in our children an increase in mental health concerns. With the boys, it tends to be acted out. So we see the boys um, getting drunk, using drugs, getting violent, getting into crime. With the girls, what concerns me about the girls is it tends to be turned inwards more. So it goes more into the self-harm, into how they think about themselves, all kinds of self-harming behavior, whether it be through their eating, cutting, um, use again of alcohol or drugs, having sex they don't want to really be having, not taking good care of themselves. So that's how it's showing up. But I'm not despairing. I actually feel very positive about our future generations. They are also um, incredibly eloquent. They're more in touch with themselves, perhaps. And, and of course, they've got us. They've got us adults who are also more self-aware. So um, there's more out there too to help them. And there's more out there for us parents too to help us in our parenting job. Just just coming in on that, actually. So there's a couple of things that as you're talking come to mind. One, one is, uh, I mean, I, I recently spoke to somebody who discovered that her daughter wasn't eating properly. And in fact, you know, hadn't eaten properly for about two or three weeks, if not more. Can you just, for, for our listeners who may be, either blind to it or just not aware of it, or as an adult, are trying to deal with the current situation in terms of their own finances. And sometimes, as we know, people are working harder to look at that and they're taking the eye off the ball with their kids. What what are the sort of more subtle signs that parents could be looking for, particularly with the, the daughters, for self-harm or indications that they may be moving into that space of self-harm? Is there anything that you can just share with us that might help our listeners look for now if they've got any concerns it might be going on? Of course, yes. And first off, forgive yourself. Um, If your child is not happy, it's not your fault as the parent. Actually, with, with the world as it is now, there's increased anxiety all around. Girls, boys, men, women. Um, It's a natural and actually reasonable, rational response to what's going on now. It's, it's, we're all unsettled. We're all scared. All of us, our routines and our habits and our our normal ways of coping have been disrupted. So it's not surprising that both adults and children are showing up with more signs of mental distress. Now, 
we're seeing in the work that I'm doing at Rights for Girls, we're seeing a massive increase in in signs of anxi- increased anxiety in, our, in the girls. And in the online parenting courses that I'm doing, I'm hearing about it from parents about both their boys and their girls. Thinking about the girls, though, and you asked about self-harm, how do you spot it? Well, you are the expert on your child. There is no one in the world who knows your child better than you do. So for a start, trust yourself, um, but trust your instincts. You know how you sometimes get that parenting feeling? You know when they're really little and everything goes quiet and you kind (laughs) of think, oh, hang on a minute, let me just go and check this out. Well, there's that version, you know, in the teen years as well, when you just get that feeling that 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 them shutting themselves in their bedroom or whatever it is that 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 kind of just gives you that gut feeling as a parent that all is not well trust it and then follow it up it depends on the relationship that you have with your child um, whether you can just you know bowl in and just say hey what's up I don't feel like things are right mm. or whether it's more kind of um, you're sat down in front of the telly and you choose to watch a film that has something in it of the concerns that you have, whether it be drinking or an eating, and then you can talk of it about it as about someone else rather than it being so directly personal to your child. But the first thing is, is, you know, children are just the same as adults. Any change in their sleeping patterns or their eating patterns Mm. or their mood is an indicator to you that, that things maybe aren't right. Equally, don't get sort of super stressed and anxious if there is a change right now, because I think there is with everybody. Um, The key thing then is to provide opportunities for your child to express how they're feeling so that they feel like there's an outlet. And every child is different. Some children are talkers and some are not. This is something I hear from parents. They're kind of, they struggle when their child expresses themselves differently from them. So they'll say, well, I tried to talk to her and she just, you know, she just said she was fine. Well, okay, maybe that's not the way. Maybe you sit down and you listen to music together and you put on some really angry music or really sad music or mm. a, a lot of a lot of um, children don't yet have the vocabulary or the experience to put into words how they're feeling, but they can do it in other ways. It can be, they'll act out, won't they? I mean, they'll show us how they're feeling in some yeah. way or another. And often as a parent, your best guide is how your child's behavior makes you feel. Because mm. children often can't tell us, but they'll show us. And if if we end up feeling really frustrated with them, chances are they're feeling really frustrated. Yes. Which is sometimes a reaction, really... isn't it? To if they start changing or putting loud music on or whatever, parents naturally just turn that down. And there's there's yeah. almost a suppression of that that feeling that they're having. Exactly. Go and sit down with them and turn the volume up and say, "Hey, <laughs> what is it about this music that you like?" <laughs> And let me play you another piece I played when I was young. Yeah, I right. Think, what do you That's think great. of this? That's brilliant. <laughs> so, Kim, we've captured this the subtle signs, uh, which, because we spoke about almost two extremes. One is the, getting to the point of self-harm, and then the other is where does it start? It could be the change in habit, the change in routine, the change in mood, as you've described. Now, before girls, and maybe the conversation you have with them, when the teenage girls come to you, how are they generally dealing with these challenges I guess on their own um, mm. and with the changes that's happening around them because the anxiety is coming from somewhere, whether it's news headline on social media saying young people will never be able to own their own home, things like that. But how are you seeing the way girls are dealing with this situation, maybe with or without help? Well, happily, I think it's more recognised in our culture and schools are bringing some of this stuff in. Um, 
But even more brilliant, the girls are amazing. I actually start working with them in their pre-teens, when they're 10 or 11 years old, when they're in year six. And we, in our Girls Joining Together groups, we actually support that transition from primary to secondary school and as they're heading into puberty. And one of the first things we do with the girls, and it's a thread that runs right through the year, we meet monthly so that the girls get to feel what monthly feels like. And through that year of meeting monthly, one of the threads that runs through is often... Um, getting the girls to share with each other what they do when they feel overwhelmed by their big feelings. Because here's another thing, preteen and teens, whether they're boys or girls, their brains are changing. So they feel their feelings more acutely than you or I do mm. and more intensely than they used to. Now, that's really that's really confusing for them and quite quite frightening actually but also of course for anyone who's parenting them because suddenly your little girl who seemed to kind of play happily and like herself <laughs> suddenly hates herself bursts into tears at the moment and tells you she's you're ruining her life um you know so it's it's they're feeling things more intensely it's really important we don't belittle their feelings and and to understand that they really do you know yeah. not having the right dress for the party really does mean like they can't go to the party and and so they are, they're faced with increased intensity of their feelings yeah. without yet the tools to know how to manage them. So that's one of the things we do in Girls Journey Together group is share with them lots and lots of different tools because what works with one girl won't work for another. So we just give them experience right. of lots of different tools. But one of the most powerful experiences they have is whenever something comes up. So maybe one one time we start the group and someone's dog has just died or granny is ill we whatever we may have planned for that session will get parked for a moment and we'll all talk about okay so who else has had that experience and how does it feel and how did you manage so the girls share with each other what has worked for them and I've learned some stuff I mean incredible I've got you know one girl who said whenever she feels anxious in her tummy she gets the cat and she climbs into the airing cupboard <laughs> and she sits there in the warm with the cat and talks to the cat um, so the girls start to realize a that they're not alone because that's something else they all feel they feel like there's something wrong with them that they suddenly feel you know they suddenly feel more weepy or more furious or or more anxious but when they hear that the other girls feel the same way then that's kind of normalizes and makes them realize there's nothing wrong with them but also um, they share with each other some of the quirky uh, unusual but also often very clever things that they do you know it might be that they just get into bed under the duvet and read a book now a parent needs to recognize that that if that that might be a child self-soothing it might not be a child avoiding doing homework or avoiding tidying their room or doing the washing up or whatever it is you want them to yeah, do yeah. they might actually be doing their very best job just coping with being right. themselves in that moment that's a very interesting yeah. point actually because i think as a parent we have our own framework around you know we, we we have a map of the world in our mind of how their behavior what it represents to us but as you're saying there it, it could be completely different it's just a subtle form of coping mechanism or, or soothing mechanism mm. for that child so so i just want to keep on this point about the groups uh, what you know because obviously savannah my daughter has has been attending and it's really interesting because what you're doing is you're allowing girls to come together that are outside of the not not necessarily part of their normal social group. So they're are they opening up in a different way? Do you think than they might do in a group that they're already attached to? Because Absolutely, the, yes. Because so, I can see huge benefits in that. Yeah, normally I welcome the girls into my sitting room and right. we sit actually 
<laughs> piled up, squished up on my sofas. And a bit more um, difficult at the moment. <laughs> absolutely. We yeah. are having we but we have um internationally at Rights for Girls, we've adapted every single session um to be able to run socially distanced. So yeah. we do now have to operate in venues and the girls sit on little girl islands two meters apart. And um amazing. we are we're still able to do all the work that we would normally do in my front room, but not so cozy and not so intimate. But nevertheless, um Absolutely. The girls come from all kinds of different um, backgrounds, different schools, different families, some some home educated. And I think that gives them a great freedom because mm. for a start, they're not going to see each other at school the next day. Um, and while some of the girls will know each other, they get to know each other in a totally different way because right from the very start, um, we we together, we, deci- we, we decide how are we going to make this a place where everybody feels like they can fit in just exactly as they are. They don't have to change anything about themselves in order to belong to Girls Journeying Together group. And for lots of girls, they don't have that experience anywhere else in their lives. And so we work very hard at um, not judging each other, at letting everybody be who they are. So even now, we're only a quarter of the way through the group and girls start turning up in their onesies and, um, <laughs> you know, because I was cold or I couldn't be bothered to get dressed. Or, But what's really important is that they can come however they feel, whatever mood they're in. And um, we always, I'll always find I have girls in my groups who are somewhere along the spectrum and they are really accepted. I've had girls come to me at the end of the year and uh, kind of with their arms crossed and looking quite cross with me saying, I like girls I never thought I'd like. <laughs> Oh, because they they practice being really kind to each other and they practice listening to each other with a kind of curiosity rather than fear, which is where the judgment comes from. And in experiencing that themselves, they're doing it for themselves too. They're practicing being curious about themselves and not judging themselves. So it's a very powerful experience and we get deep very very quickly even by session two we'll have life stories coming out and tears and rage and um for the girls who feel safe to now i've got some girls who who may hardly speak throughout the whole year but that's also okay it's really okay to be an introvert i think there's so much pressure on on children to to speak out and to be extrovert and to be kind of especially with social media these amplification for sure yeah so it's really important that they feel that they can be quiet if that's how they feel. And, you know, girls will often feed back to them because we celebrate each girl in the month of her birthday and we tell her what we think of her. And um, it's quite interesting that sometimes they'll, the quieter girls will hear like, well, when you talk, I know to shut up because when you speak, which isn't very often, you say some really good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. This question I probably wanted to save to the end, but... It's because of the, the the things you've just highlighted here. If there are any teenage girls listening to this right now, uh, specifically the teenage girls listening, what message can you share with them about just how they're feeling? Uh, because you've highlighted some of the amazing experiences that's happened in your group. But what's a message to teenage girls listening to this episode right now? Okay, great. To the teenage girls, life is really shit sometimes. And it's really hard and your parents are going to mess up, but they love you and they're doing their best. And sometimes their best won't be good enough. So look for other adults that can also be there for you and just know that it's going to get easier. 
The teenage years are tough. It's true. What you're experiencing is normal, but it's not easy. And there are adults around you who can help you through and your friends. Of course, your friends are going through it too. They're not always the best people to turn to because they're not always the wisest and they don't always have your best interests at heart. That's where parents can be quite good because they really do love you. But there are other adults too. Don't try and do this alone and don't for a minute think there's anything wrong with you if you're feeling a bit rubbish and it will get easier. Wow, that's that's a mm. lovely message. So, <laughs> I've got tears in my eyes because I wish I heard that in my teens. I love in my throat listening to that. Yeah, so you've, um, you've got both of us choked up. That's a that's a powerful and one. and hey, it's some of the most exciting times Isn't too. Yeah. I mean, parenting a teenager is really exciting because hey, you teenagers, you you push us to the limits. You get us to question things, things that we've been taking for granted. It's your job to question everything. And as a parent, that might feel challenging for us. But do you know what? It's such a gift to have a young person in our lives who is who is kind of thinking, who am I? And what's this life about? You re- you're refreshing. You're, you're reminding us about what the important mm. things are in life. And, and it true. is exciting. Mm. And life is a big adventure. And go out there and explore it and be yourself and find out who that is by messing up, by making mistakes mistakes there's nothing wrong with making mistakes but just make sure you learn from your mistakes and and being with a teenager having a teenager in your life is so exhilarating yeah and i think there's a there's a lesson there for us as adults as well (laughs) making mistakes i think is taking the opportunity to learn so our teenagers go turn the music up right now anyway (laughs) yes um i'm gonna ask you a question about rights for girls actually just from a parenting perspective i know it's sometimes difficult as as a parent myself to interpret what my daughter is thinking, and you've already alluded to this as well as laughing earlier on, the swings. Um, I think it's fair to say, in all honesty, that most parents lack the tools. We're not, we're not naturally brought up and educated on this, on understanding how to communicate and relate to our teenage children, particularly our daughters, those of you that I think you made a good point. I remember as a lad, there was three of us, we'd just go out rough and tumble, climb trees and let our steam off. I see a different experience with my own daughter. I've got a younger one who's six, so she's going to be going into that soon. How did you approach this as you developed rights for girls? So did, was it something that you you structured in a very specific way? Did it evolve? How did Kim bring this, this journeying experience to the table? What was the evolution of it? And what were some of the processes that really dropped into place for you? Mm, so there's a few things here. Rights for Girls was partly came out of my eldest boy, I overheard him talking about mums and mothers and what they do. And I was horrified (laughs) because he talked about kind of cooking and cleaning and driving children places. And I kind of thought, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want you to think women. That's what a woman's life is. And I realized that I needed to be doing something in my life that was in addition to mothering, that was in more than parenting, something that was out there in the world and fulfilling for me. Mm. He was home educated too. So really my life did look like it was orientated around him. So Mm. um, that's where I started to think about doing something. I have to say Rights for Girls was born out of a very, very sad event. Our fourth child was born and died. And um, it was one of the most painful times in my life. Mm. And I realized that I was I had love in my heart for a little baby that I could no longer hold in my arms. And I needed to be able to channel that love somewhere. And I have so much love and affection for children. Not so much babies. I'm not a baby person. I'm not so good with the babies. But but preteens and teens, 
that's where my heart lies. And I just thought, okay, I've got some, I had some mothering energy here that has, has now got nowhere to go and I need to do something with this. And that's really where Rights for Girls was born. In terms of what parents, you talked about how do parents know what their children are feeling and thinking. And um, I want you to trust that you do know three things. First of all, you were that age yourself once. You were a preteen, you were a teenager, whatever the age of your child, you've been there. Sometimes just spending a moment taking yourself back there. And for many people, that might be a bit painful. And so we resist it. But when you're parenting a child, it can be really useful to spend a bit of time remembering back to how it was for you at that age, because it'll give you some insight into perhaps where your own child might be. But don't for a minute think your child needs what you needed. They are a separate and different person. So um, that's where the second thing comes in, which is that you are the, you're the expert on your child. You've known them their whole life through. You've been studying them and their behavior has been speaking to you their whole life through. They don't always speak to you in the kindest and nicest of ways, but you know, you've, you've been on a training course on your child since the moment they were born. Yeah. And, and finally, um, something actually that I really do recommend and it actually takes up the whole of the first chapter of my book, which is to spend special time with your child individually. So if you've got more than one children, more than one child rather, to take each child in turn and spend individual special time outside of ordinary life, outside of the kind of, a lot of parents feel like they spend a lot of time with their children. Um, and of course you do, but it's not in this more kind of relaxed and focused and fun way. In the book, because the book is about raising girls, I call it a mother-daughter date. But of course, it doesn't have to be a mother and it doesn't have to be a daughter, an adult child, um, special adult child time. And in fact, at Rights for Girls, we've now created diaries, either a, either a mother-daughter date diary, and we've just produced a me and you time diary, which is unisex. So that's for any adult and child pairing. And the, it's kind of treating it like a date. So you you plan it ahead not just you. We're, we parents are often the keepers of the diary. So we might have in mind, oh, on Sunday, I've got an afternoon off. We could maybe, I could maybe do that. But something else comes up and you, you end up not doing it. But it doesn't matter because the child didn't know you had that in mind. The point about this is that you both plan it together. So you both get to anticipate it and look forward to it just like a date. And then you don't cancel it. You honor it. And if it does need to be postponed, you find another time. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. It can just be stopping off on, on the way home. I mean, at the moment we're in lockdown. So let's think about the lockdown dates. It can be, you know, making some popcorn and choosing together something you want to watch and doing that together. Just the two of you though, in a room together, or it could be getting into the kitchen and kind of saying, okay, right, we're going to create a three course meal together with menus and waitressing and, and doing that together. Um, but it's what it is, is it's got the, it's got the kind of quality of a date, you know, that it's special. You both make an effort and just the same as on a date, you wouldn't choose that time to nag <laughs> or question them about things that, you know, they don't necessarily want to talk about. It's really about kind of having precious time together, creating creating rituals together. Because then if you do that once a month, what that does is it opens up the lines of communication and that will carry you through the teen years. If, you, if whatever's happening in your life, even if you feel like your teen does not deserve it, you still go on that date. Um, and I know that my daughter saves up things sometimes to talk to me about, knowing that she's going to get that opportunity. But because we also 
have these dates, she'll sometimes call a date. She'll go, I need a mini date now. Um, <laughs> and um, it's, it's a way in which we are able to kind of stay in touch. And, and there are certain things that, you know, she's got the right to ban certain things on a date. It's like, no, 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 we can't. No, we're not talking about that. This is a date. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, this this alone from this podcast, just this one piece is so powerful. I think for yeah. any parents listening, I, I want to jump in actually and throw a few curveball stroke contentious questions that might come back on this. And I think this is important because as you're talking, being a parent of two, I already know, by the way, this experience because, you know, Steena and Savannah have gone off and had a couple of dates together and they're Scandinavian style dates. So I understand what Kim's sharing with us here because they've obviously been working through um, the workshops and the program. But here's a question for you, Kim. This is also then really about parents starting to raise their level of consciousness about being aware of when they are unconsciously dismissing a commitment to a child that that one little promise that's broken might not seem like a big promise but it's a bit like felling an oak tree you can't fell it with one big cut of the axe but lots of little cuts lots of little promises broken really do um, affect the way the child perceives their relationship with us as a parent doesn't it I mean I've seen this in couples relationships as well so when we make a promise it really is important to keep that to our children isn't it not just yes. a date, though. It's 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 anything of, of this yes. commitment. And at the same time, I think we parents are under so much pressure to provide so much for our children and really important that we give ourselves a break. Mm. <laughs> you know, sometimes, and particularly at the moment, for those parents who are now working from home, everyone's at home. So the domestic life, there's much more work there too. And their children now, at the moment because we're in our third lockdown, are at home and they've, we're trying to kind of help them do some sort of education or at least keep some sort of routine and rhythm going in their lives. We are under a lot of pressure. So we need to actually, in some ways, scale back what we're expecting of ourselves. So scale back what you're expecting and then do what little you can do really well. Don't try and be all things to all people. Don't try and be everything for your child. Actually, hand, it's this is something else that's really important is that children need more than just one or two parents to raise them. They need a whole village. And so call in the aunties and the godparents and the grandparents and whoever your child seems to form a special connection to. These days that we have a kind of cultural taboo in um, interfering in the raising of someone else's child. And so if you want to give your child additional adults in their lives, which is going to be a bonus, you know, to, for that they have mentors, other people that they can go to when actually you're not the right person. We have to invite those adults in. We as the parents have to give permission to those other adults. And, and whilst we might not quite like, you know, the influence of that auntie or, or that neighbour, it's perhaps recognising that they do bring something different and it is a kind of rich tapestry a mosaic that our children need lots of different adults so I really want us as parents not to feel like we've got to do this job on our own and it's not it's a great message it's, actually. it's it's something that we also need to help each other with and that's something that the girls journeying together groups does that's very powerful because at the same time as I meet with the girls or any of our rights for girls facilitators around the country around the world meet with the girls the mothers also sit in circle the mothers also meet because um 
when your child is young, you kind of meet at the school gates and you, or you, um, you know, you sit in the soft play area and parents naturally can support each other. They just chat and, and you get support. But once you get into the preteen and the teen years and your child can get places on their own and um, you don't have to hang around while they're doing it, parents then actually lose that incidental support that we give each other. And so we actually need to look for it. We need to make sure that we've got other adults in our lives, other parents, particularly parents who are a bit further down the journey than we are, so that we can go to them and say, oh, this has just come up. How did you manage this? How did you cope with this? We're not necessarily going to have all the answers and know automatically just because we love our child. We do actually need to find out when we get stuck and, and not feel like we have to pretend that we know more than we do or pretend that we're coping better than we do. All parents have times when they are completely flummoxed by the parenting job and don't know what to do. And it's okay to reach out and and talk to other people or look for a book or a course, Mm. whatever way works for you. Mm. Listen to this podcast. (laughs) Listen to this podcast, absolutely. On that note, culturally, are there certain cultures that you've observed or parents can almost investigate or learn from? Because coming from an Asian background, that rich tapestry, that community, that concept of a second or third or fourth, it's quite humorous sometimes, but... Uncle, auntie. Uncle, auntie. <laughs> everybody's an uncle, auntie. And, and in that dynamic, yes, actually, as a child, as a teenager, you grow up and all these adults become your uncles and aunties. And just almost with that title you feel like there is different support and different lessons to learn from. And I certainly experienced that growing up, lots of uncles and aunties. Doesn't matter what the relation was as such, the very fact that that we're in that community, I personally saw as a great benefit. So parents who maybe are removed from that or haven't been raised like that culturally, what can they do to almost re-enter these cultures? Copy. Copy the cultures that are getting it right in this respect. And um, talk to people, talk to other adults about what their experience was of growing up in their culture, whatever their culture was. And if you hear or see of anything that you think is is beneficial, bring that into your life. And and in our culture, we have to work at it a bit. You know, we have to maybe bring in the family friend and make sure that they get asked around for dinner or around for tea regularly so that their child, so that your child continues to have a living relationship with them. But equally, we've got technology too now. So Um, Even if you've got family around the world um, that your child might not see in the flesh very often, make sure that when you talk to your mum, their grandmother, or your sister, their auntie, or your brother, their uncle, get them on the phone too, so that there is a living, breathing relationship there, so that when they feel a bit older and maybe need to turn to someone else who they know loves and cares about them, but actually isn't quite so very close, um, that they've got other people that they feel they can talk to. And give your child permission too, as well, because a lot of children feel like they are maybe um, betraying us if we say bad, if they say bad things about us. Mm. So I often say to my children, you know, look, my sister grew up with me. She knows what's brilliant about me, but she also knows what's really not very good about me. So it's really fine. You won't, if you tell her about what a horrible mother I've been, you won't be telling her anything she doesn't already know. And she knows that you love me as well. So it's okay. Tell her. Fantastic. It's amazing, actually. I overhear my youngest daughter saying things to my mother and, you know, there's conversations about what's been going on and six-year-olds is, is a, just an absolute, what they see is what they say, isn't it? There's no, there's no filter. It's beautiful to hear. 
I just want to pick up on on a, a question, just going back to because I, I love this idea of the dates, um, the, the mother daughter date or the parent child date. For those parents that are listening, that are this is more of a parenting quiet question. I want to come to that a little bit later as well because I know you've been starting to run some workshops on this. But for parents that are thinking, okay, that's great, Kim. We've got two kids or three kids. What guidance can we give them for how to manage that conversation so that it doesn't feel like one is getting preferential treatment? Because there does need to be a little bit of parent management of, okay, if you take the teenage daughter, then I'll look after the other two or the other one. That's certainly how we've sort of managed it. I've had my day with Liv, for example, whilst Dina's gone off with Savannah. Are there any just tips there? Because I can imagine people loving the idea might be thinking, how do I manage that process? Yeah. So don't get overwhelmed. Don't think that you have to do big, massive dates. Do one big date a year. So do one big outing that's really special. But other dates really, I mean, my daughter, her favourite date used to be before lockdown, used to be me and her going to down the high street and visiting all the charity shops. And we had one rule. We had We could only buy one thing. <laughs> and that one thing had to be either something that we could give away to somebody. So it either had to be something that we knew someone we knew needed, or it had to be something that we would use on the date. So I remember one time we bought this, um, I didn't even know what it was. I had to Google it in the shop. Um, it was actually a waffle maker iron thing. Ah, lovely. Um, and, and so we bought that. And then we went to the supermarket and bought the ingredients and came home and made these waffles and fed everybody. Um, and that was her favorite date, you know, was just going charity shop shopping with me, partly because she knows I hate shopping. So she knew <sighs> that this was something that I was really doing out of deep love for her because I was, I was not in my comfort zone. I was not in my happy place. She was very much in her happy place. Now, I, I used to go around the country talking to packed halls of parents and this question would always come up. People would say, well, I've got four children. Could I, could I take the girls on the same date? And I was right. like, well, mm. would you take your partner and then bring another man or woman along and say, well, actually, I'm a bit short on time. Can I bring them too? No, no, you don't. If you Obviously, you can't do four big dates a month. So divvy it up between the parents, whether you live together or not. Hopefully, you're co-parenting in some way. And if that's not your situation, then bring in, I mean, every child needs a same-sex adult and an opposite-sex adult in their lives. If they're not your, their actual parent, just make sure that you've got somebody of the same sex and the opposite sex in your child's life and then divvy it up between the two of you. Like you said, one, you know, I'll take all the other children if you get, you know, if you have this one. And then the thing about it being fair, I'm one of four children and I know my parents tried really hard to make things fair and the way they did that was by trying to make it equal. Mm -hmm. um, now, that was a really good experience for me as a child growing up because what it meant is I got given a lot of things I didn't want and need and I didn't get given some of the things I really did need. So with my, our three children, I've done it differently. Better, of course. <laughs> no, just differently. <laughs> differently um, yeah. And um, what I've done and what and my husband and I have tried to do is to give our children what they need. So sometimes that might mean that one child needs more than the other children. And whether that be on a shopping thing, you know, that their their Christmas present is much bigger than everyone else's or they need more time or they need some uh, something else bigger than the others. I've always explained to my children, look, I'm trying to give each of you what you need when you need it and you're not going to need it at the same time. Please trust me 
that it will even out. And if you feel I'm really getting it wrong, let me know. But this year, this person's getting a laptop for Christmas. You are not all going to get an equivalent present because we can't afford it. But there will come your time when you will need something big. And it might not be a laptop. It might be something else. And you'll be the person that we splash out on. And the same with time and attention. My children are really aware that sometimes there's one or another of them who's going through a difficult time. So, of course, they're going to need more of our time. Um, And as long as they know that they're not forgotten. So Mm. little bits go a long way. I don't know if you, you're both parents, when you're absolutely exhausting, a 10 minute nap can go a long way, even though you feel like you need, you need a weekend away, a mini break. Um, And it's the same with children. I think sometimes we as parents can feel so overwhelmed by their, what's feel like bottomless pit of need, but actually just setting aside 10 minutes to say, Hey, listen, I've made hot drinks. Come with me. Let's go in the other room and just tell me something about today. Tell me something about you today. And that 10 minutes, that child will go away feeling like they've had something from you. And it's enough to keep them going, even if actually there's another child in the house who's getting hours and hours of your time. Mm, That's a lovely message. I'm going to sort of steer this slightly... I want to ask you a father question, but there's, I'm still, I make notes uh, as you're talking. And one of the things you talked about, and I think it's really important for our parents to pick up on that point, is you said, even if your daughter hasn't necessarily been good or something's gone, you're upset with them, you said, still take them out on that date. Can you just expand on that? Because I get a sense that this is about not punishing them for, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was a very subtle thing you threw in there, but I think it's quite important because I think for the, pride or an ego of a parent they might go you're not going to go on this date with me because you misbehaved or whatever you're but i think that's a very very valuable point is. you raised there could you just expand on that a little bit for us yes of course so in our parenting role we have to be the adults and our children's behavior will trigger us all the time they've they've spent their lives studying us they know exactly what button, buttons to press and when we're triggered we are no longer adults when we're triggered generally it's something childlike or childish within us that's Very been good. triggered and if we parent from that place mm. we are parenting child to child and we are not doing our very best job. So, of course, sometimes our children act up and behave badly. And when we're in our adult place, what we're able to do is not make our child wrong for that. We're able to look at that behavior and think, hmm, what does that tell me about what my child needs right now? Now, that's the ideal parent. I'm certainly triggered all the time. And when I'm triggered, I do not sit there thinking, now, what does that mean? I'm thinking there, you little shit. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. I'm not going to do that. How dare you? Because, but that's, from a, that's not from my adult place. So mm. when, when I say don't punish them, what I mean is don't punish them from your child. Mm. Um, you, it's not to mean that behavior might not have consequences. It might not have implications. But if we can do that from an adult place where the child is learning something and it's not a punishment, because as soon as we punish, the child learns nothing. If they, if we punish them, their feelings that they were, ha- that they were having mm. that caused them to behave in the way that they did will suddenly switch into feelings towards you. <laughs> like your, you know, their, their feelings of upset, hatred, sadness about you as a parent. And you've just, dis- you've just divorced them from the true, right source of their feelings. Behavior in a child, behavior in any person actually, comes out of somewhere. Um, And our job as parents is never to make our children wrong, never to make them wrong for how they're behaving, but actually to seek to understand why they're behaving in that way. So the mother-daughter date or the 
the me and you time, special date between adult and child. That is your superpower. That is how you stay connected to your child. And when you stay connected to your child, then you've got influence. The minute you set yourself up in opposition to your child, you've just lost influence, actually. You've just lost the ability to communicate with them and for them to learn from this. You've now set yourself up in opposition. You've become the enemy. And all their attention and focus is going to be on somehow getting getting out of the conflict with you. You've just divorced them from what's lying un- underneath it and and and, and it, their deep sadness or their fear or their anger. And it might be at you from something you've done. It might be justified, in which case we as parents have to be able to kind of go, you're right. Look at ourselves. You're yeah. right, actually. I I messed up there. Tell me, what do you need? What What do I need to do to make this up to you? Yeah. It's... um. I think for anybody listening to this, uh, my feeling is there's going to be a few ahas going on. A big um, awareness shift. I just, when you just talked about making them feel uh, almost guilty, or I, I just made a little note to myself to said I've fallen into that trap myself. I think as parents, we do revert back to that almost childlike reaction, which kind of leads me into a father question. I'm going to ask you as a dad here, Kim, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure I speak for other fathers. Um, it's a really difficult sense, and it is a sensitive area, I think, for for, for a lot of dads who maybe they see their their partner as being so much better at dealing with and coping with and and understanding their daughter but what a i guess my question would be because i think in in the book you have a chapter called how to manage her wild and magnificent moods i think that was the name of the chapter but i i know for me I, i'm still learning about savannah and what she's going through at the moment have you got any simple steps for dads, us listening? Yeah. You know, some real layman <laughs> yeah. ones, because we need to be coached simply, don't we, us dads? Maybe just ways to either look for or understand how to manage some of those swings that, that we see yeah. in our teenage daughters. That, that yeah. I think some mothers handle so much better than us as dads. That's my experience anyway. Well, their mothers are, you're never going to be as good as their mothers at, <laughs> at being, That's cleared at up. being the That's mother. Cleared that one up. You're never going to be as good as the mothers at being the mother. Mm. No one is going to be as good at you as you as being the father. Mm. Nobody in the world. And every little girl, however old she is, needs her dad. Mothers, actually, by all children, are often taken for granted. It's like they're kind of just a given. And that is a great privilege as a mother, that you are kind of just there and you're assumed Fathers are not. Children will often feel like they have to earn their father's attention, respect, time. Um, In some senses, you are their first gateway to the world. You are their first relationship. In a sense, they don't have the same kind of relationship with mother. It's almost like it's just there. A bit like the way we treat the planet. Fathers are the first person that that a child looks to for approval. The way that you look at your child, the way that you you feel when you're looking at your child cannot be more powerful, cannot be more important. So now let's talk about my dads and daughters. Mm. So she's got her got you round her little finger. That is part of the special relationship that you have. She is learning about relationships. She is learning about how to relate to people in through her relationship with you and she's looking to you for approval for love and for your time and when you give that to her she knows herself 
and she feels loved and cared for. I cannot underestimate how important you are. And many dads, as their girls go into puberty, start to feel like, whoa, as the feelings start to hit off and the body starts to change. And, you know, a lot of dads step back at that time. And I understand that because it does feel like your, you know, your daughter is now heading into territory that you don't necessarily feel comfortable. But go with her, walk alongside her. She needs her dad at her side. She needs her dad offering her tips and advice and listening just the same because listen you are modeling for her the relationship between man and woman the relationship between female and male so whatever however you relate to her and also however you relate to her mother whatever your relationship with her mother may be is gives her the blueprint for what to expect from the men in her life, from the boys, from the boyfriends, from the men at work, from potentially other men that she encounters. So you are setting the standard. So set it high, raise the bar high, so that if she feels like you treat her with respect and with love, and she sees you treating her mother with love and respect, that's what she's going to expect from all the boys and the men in her life. That's what she's going to settle for. So just don't underestimate your power and your influence. Um, and equally, don't you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to get it right all the time. But um, just don't underestimate. Don't step back. Stay involved. You Indeed. are just as powerful and as important as as her mother. And that's um, you know, as you're saying this, it's hitting so many notes for me, resonating. Mm-hmm. Just seeing, uh, even in, in a situation at home where, I mean, as most people know, listening to this during lockdown, if all families are in one space. The, if a couple want to have a higher volume discussion and is <laughs> uh, finding a space to do that outside of the children's ear, earshot, if you like. Or if you're going to fight, fight clean. You know, there's yeah. nothing wrong with them seeing us going into conflict yes. and seeing us, but make sure that you, yeah. that you fight as adults, that you have conflict as adults. And if, and if you don't, when you don't, um, which is inevitable, make sure they see you resolving it and making yes. up as well. A lot yeah. of children see the see the conflict right. kicking off and then the, the kind of kissing and making up is done behind closed doors so they yes. don't see the whole process. That's so, a very good point. Um, yeah. And the other thing is, you know, recognize that parents give a balance. So however, whatever you may feel about your, your partner's or, you know, the other parent's um, role – it's recognize that it's a balancing force. You don't have to agree all the time. I mean, I know sometimes I, I hate what my husband brings to the children's life. Um, it's not what I would do and it's not what I like, but I do recognize that it's a good balance for them. Um, and that they having, having those two influences gives them a chance to then find their own third way because there, it means there isn't just one right way. True. There's yeah. mum's way, there's dad's way, and there's their way. This is, um, there's this just gold nuggets after gold nugget yeah. here. I, I want to ask a question because we do have listeners that are divorced. So they might be listening and, and for example, there may be mums listening to this and we've talked about this, having this masculine, this male presence as well. Are there any tips there that uh, and you have alluded to it by maybe having a close friend of the family come in, but uh, just going back on that note. So the subject that we talked about, or having a father's or or a male influence there for, for a, a mum that's listening and thinking, oh, this is great. Actually, this is exactly what my daughter needs. Uh, any sort of pearls of wisdom on that note, Kim? Yes. 
children are incredibly resilient so they can they can actually are sometimes relieved when mum and dad split up if it's if it's a relationship that's, that really yes. isn't working yeah. every child though wants mum and dad to get on because they are half of each of you so when they hear you speaking ill of the other parent they take it personally because they feel as if you're speaking ill of them too because they are part other parent so if you're having difficulty in that relationship, get help. It's not easy separating and, and also co-parenting at a distance from different households. And I know that sometimes the partner might be actually someone who's actually very difficult for you to keep in relationship with. Mm. So, of course, you need to protect yourself first and foremost. But as best as possible, never speak ill of a child's other parent because they will take it personally. The other thing to know is every child thinks it's their fault that you've broken up. Every child, whether they're able to put it into words or not, believes that somehow if they had somehow not behaved badly or not said or done something, that somehow magically that would have kept you together. So all children need to know that it really isn't their fault. And you can explicitly tell them that. And then all children do need men and women in their lives, good men and women. So if for whatever reason, the other parent isn't someone who you feel is giving, you know, putting in a good um, influence in your child's life, just make really sure that there are other men or other women who are. Mm. Um, and also that your child sees you relating to other opposite sex adults in a way that is wholesome and healthy so that they can see that okay so maybe that relationship didn't work out but but this one I can learn from this one I can see how men and women can get on and how they are really different and how they can disagree but that actually it isn't unsafe and it isn't it's resolvable so yes um children need they need lots of adults in their lives and they need adults of, of all different kinds amazing I wanted to take this opportunity just to shift gears and talk to you about your book because we've had so many amazing golden nuggets, but this is somewhere where a parent can go and get golden nugget on golden nugget on golden nugget and almost a blueprint as such, which is your amazing book from daughter to women. And the book goes right to the heart of the challenges that we've almost started to discuss today. Specifically, could you just tell us more about the book and how it can benefit our readers as parents? And for the listeners at home uh, listening to this, I will put the link to the book in the show notes. Anything that we speak about, uh, a way to get hold of Kim, her workshops, and all the other amazing areas that she's spoken about, that will be linked up in the show notes as normal. So over to you, Kim. So my book, I wrote that first of all for all the parents who didn't have girls who were the right age to come to Girls Journeying Together groups. It's actually written for parents, mothers and fathers um, of girls and boys, actually. A lot of it is just as relevant to raising our boys, but really from the age of about seven to 17, because I... And yet, actually, no, because when I think about when I go around the country talking to parents, I've got many parents who come who've got little children, three, four, five, and they're already dreading the teen years. I wrote that book because I don't want you to dread the teen years. Mm. I want you to look forward to the teen years. And I want you to know that you actually have everything within you that you need to parent your child safely through that through that time. And you do, your child does not have to end up doing some of the things that you may be fearful that they're doing, doing some of the things that maybe you did. <laughs> and that's what, partly what can make the teen years scary is knowing what you did as a teenager. So the book is really written 
actually to start in well before the preteen years. If you read that book when your child is three, four, five years old, it's not too soon. Equally, if your child is already in the teen years, it's not too late. There are four sections in the book, though, that I have really specifically written for that kind of preteen puberty adolescent stage, which um, they're written actually giving you the words to know how to speak to your child about these four issues, because not all parents feel like, feel confident to speak to their child about puberty or to speak to them about periods or to speak to them about feelings and relationships. So there are four sections in the book that actually use the words that I use when I'm working with the girls in Girls Journeying Together to explain what happens to your body when you go into puberty and how to catch the blood when it comes and um, what to do when you are overwhelmed by feelings or um, how to navigate the check, you know, how relationships change in the preteen and the teen years. But that said, it's a book very much to dip in and out of. You don't have to sit down and read it from cover to cover. And I have recorded it with Audible too. So if you want to listen to me reading it to you, um, then it's also available through Amazon and through Audible in that way. But um, it's a dip in book. So um, you might sort of suddenly feel like it would be really useful to to read about, let me think, well, the whole, the whole of the first chapter is dedicated to the special mother-daughter date time. The whole of the last chapter is dedicated to puberty rites of passage, how you could create. It's a, basically the last chapter is a how-to guide in how to create a, a rite of passage for your child. Now, whilst it's written, this book is about girls, I had two boys and then a girl. Okay. And um, we created a puberty right for for our boys as well as as um actually we haven't we haven't created our daughter's one yet she's she's got very grand plans and she's very involved in Amazing. in the creation of hers so there's a how to guide in the last chapter and all well in between it's it's i hope what i've done it's it's full of stories as well that show you how other parents have tackled certain things i hope it's full of really practical down to earth tips and it's not judgy not at I all. don't I don't for a minute. I mean, this is what bothers me when you listen to me here in this podcast. I don't want you to think that I'm perfect. I make all the mistakes that I talk about in the book I and I still make them. And sometimes my children, I might be kind of um, in the midst of a conflict with my child and they'll kind of go, you're supposed to be a child expert. You're supposed to be doing better than this. And I'll be going, yes, you're right. I'm messing up. I hate how I'm being a parent right now. I'm really sorry. Okay, let's re let's re just regroup. So um, I make all these mistakes mistakes that's how I know about them that's amazing that's that's fantastic one question I had was just to elaborate on what you spoke about in the book which is and you've mentioned and alluded to in the podcast today is puberty rights what does that mean if somebody's first listening to potentially that phrase people are aware of puberty but how do those two words combined mean something different so this is something that um we don't really know so much about anymore a lot of the religions have hung on to it, but it used to be that the rite of passage that was given the most time and attention throughout the whole community was the puberty rite of passage, which is the preparing of our young people, preparing them for adulthood, and then having some sort of ceremony celebration to mark their passage from child to young adult. Actually, girls journeying together groups, they are completely integral part of that preparation. So whilst the girls will join us at 10, 11 years old, um, that is the beginning of that preparation, which is, which is getting together with your peer group and learning 
from an adult mentor. And a lot of what the girls learn in girls group is the sorts of things they need to know to become a young adult woman, a healthy, wholesome, empowered, true to themselves, young adult woman. But that's just the preparation. And you would expect the preparation to take a year or two, just the same way as a wedding. You prepare mm. over, a, over a period of time. A pregnancy, you know, a birth of a child, you prepare over a long period of time. And, but it also needs to be marked. And sadly, this is the rite of passage that's been lost. And what I want to do is help all of us to bring it back, but bring it back in a way that doesn't feel weird to the teenagers because they have a bullshit monitor and, you know, too many candles and chanting in the woods that is not going to speak to them. So it's got to be something that feels relevant and and right to their lives. If we don't provide this rite of passage for them, the need for it doesn't go away. And what I see is teenagers will self-initiate. Right. They, They need to prove Actually, they need to prove to you, their parents and the community around them, but also to each other that they are no longer children. And the way that they self-initiate often is to dress like adults, to talk like adults, to behave, to do the things that adults do. So what do adults do that children don't do? They drink, they drive, they have sex. And so often teenagers are doing those two things too young and too early because they're trying to prove to themselves and others that they're growing up. And if we don't offer them a rite of passage, an acknowledgement from us, the adults in their community, if we don't offer them some way of marking that they are growing up, then they will try to do it themselves. And they often do it in quite risky ways. And Kim, do you think we've lost that just because of society moving so fast, working patterns changing, parents being busy, it just been sort of blurred into a new form of living? What do you think happened to it? Because it's such a beautiful process, isn't it, that you're bringing back to life? Yes. That's a really good question. Why have we lost it? Because we've kept other ones. We've kept the christening and the naming ceremony. We've kept the marriage or the union. We've kept the funeral. And we've lost this one. And yet this was the one that was given the most um, time and attention. So why have we lost it? I wonder. I think partly because perhaps it's been Perhaps actually it's been the growth of the teenage phase. Mm. It used to be that the, the we've got this elongated adolescence now where, you know, it used to be that when my dad grew up, you know, a lot of them left school at 14 and got their first jobs. And when they got their first jobs, they got their first suit. Um, and, and that was kind of like a rite of passage. Now we have this elongated education, true. at least up to 18, maybe into the early 20s, where children are still living at home. They're not working. They're not behaving as adults. And so I think it's kind of blurred the edges as to where adulthood begins. And it's not that it's actually in a moment. Um, and so people often say to me, what age should I do the rite of passage? And you as the adult, you as the parent will know when the right age is. Yeah. It might be when your daughter starts her period, but if she's eight, that's way too young to, to actually have a rite of passage, even though she starts her period at eight. Yeah. It might be when she turns 13 or 16 or 18. You'll have a sense. You'll have it. You'll just have it. I know I did for our children that suddenly they felt like they were kind of engaging in the world in a different way and they were engaging with themselves in a different way. And it felt mm. like it was the right time. But we did take a year to prepare and plan and and then do it. So why do I think it's missing? I think it's because we've lost, we've got this elongated adolescence. And mm. actually, that means it's even more necessary and important exactly. to market so that yes. our children know that yes, you are this is the you are a grown-up. And it's one of the first questions we ask mothers, actually, in the mother's circle when they come to join Girls Journeying Together, is how did you know when you became a woman? Mm. 
And the answer to that question is so multivariate, you know, very varied. And, yeah. and it, but actually, I think it's not, it's not the, an- there's no right or wrong answer. It's not the answer that matters. It's the thinking about it. How is your child going to know when you see them as an adult? Mm. Yeah. And because it's not just about, it's not just about getting all the, all the kind of rights and the freedoms of being an adult. It's also taking on the responsibilities of an adult. And it's one of the things that the Girls Learning, Girls Journeying Together group is, if you want your parents to give you more freedom, you need to be stepping up and taking more responsibility and showing them mm. that it's safe for them to pass that freedom over to you. And, and that is a process of growing in as part of the growing up. But I think it needs marking. It needs acknowledging. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right as well. It, it, it's... What I certainly what I saw and I've seen over the years, a lot of work I do out about with audiences is that there's almost so much emphasis placed in those schooling years towards the next step is getting to university, getting your exams, getting the results. And there's been more emphasis placed on the academic transition and that personal passage that you're talking about. And then it's the career. People are looking at getting jobs and owning houses and things like that. And at what point did you make that transition? It becomes a blur, right? Exactly. It's uh, it's an interesting uh, question. Yes, yeah, so thank you. I just uh, that, that just on the back of my mind. I mean, just I just want to add on a personal note regards to the book. By the way, that uh, if, if anybody's listening to this and you're sort of thinking, should I? Shouldn't I? Just just go get the book. It's a fantastic, easy read on the basis that if you're somebody that wants to dip in, dip out, you've just got something on your mind that you want to address. You've already talked about this already, Kim. But it, it's a book that you can easily go into, read a chapter, work on that, come away from it, and go. It's not done in such a way that you have to follow it from start to finish. That's certainly my experience of it. That's fair to say, Kim, isn't it? Yes, because I know what it's like being a parent. You don't have a chunk of time to sit down and read a book. No. It's more that you you kind of get to some sort of crisis and you reach for something <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Um And um, it, it's interesting, though, sometimes mothers who've got the book will then read out sections to fathers and and um it can start it can be a springboard for a really interesting conversation or even reading it to their children again it can be it can open up a conversation maybe that you didn't know quite how to have it but um it's it it gives you a way in but yes the book is very much i hopefully i hope it's really practical it's stuff you can do you can put into use and into practice today and it isn't lots of work it's um but it is calling you to account because yes, um, something agreed. we haven't really talked about, and I think this is something that comes up in the online parenting courses that I do, is that actually often doing um, getting parenting right starts with giving ourselves some attention. Mm. And in the book, I do ask of you to um, think about your own experience growing up and what you learned from that and also what it is that you're role modeling to your child so if there's something you want to pass on to your child um do it yourself live it yourself it's the it comes up all the time when people ask me about social media what shall i do about social media it's like well just check out your own social media first have good good internet hygiene and then if you're doing it your child will automatically learn a lot from that and also you it gives you a good basis from which to then talk to them about it i've had so many children tell me how how cross they feel with their parents who tell them they can't can't bring their phones to the table and yet their parent brings their phone to the table because there might be an important work call that comes in yeah. well for children their social lives is their work so if any you know what needs to a rule for one needs to apply for all hmm. 
That's, that's uh, touched upon a question I've actually wanted to ask throughout this episode, which is... Millenn- this is our itching millennial sat, itching sat here in the office. Yeah, millennial question, because I've, I've got a newborn almost six months old. So this is like a parenting masterclass for me. I, I'm absolutely loving this. But millennials who are slightly older than me in the top range of being a millennial, they children may be between five, 10 years old. So this is so relevant to them right now. And you've touched upon it, which is, you know, Millennials are the first generation to be uh, surrounded by, absorbed by this phenomenon, which is technology, social media, the ability to have information at our fingertips whenever we want. What's a message to them? What can millennials do to manage that process? Because we actually don't understand it yet. That's fair to say. There's so many documentaries, discoveries, books written about what the predictions will be based on what's happening right now, but nobody actually truly knows what is what. We're starting to see some signs and impacts floating about. What can millennial parents do to manage that for their teenagers, knowing that if we haven't really got a grasp on it, how are our teenagers, how are our 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds supposed to have a grasp on it? And this, I I imagine, applies to both boys and girls. And maybe you've seen a scenario, which you don't mind sharing with the work that you've done, where social media, the technology has impacted directly the children that you've worked with. What's your thoughts on that? It's a very wide question, but I've been itching to ask it. So first of all, don't be scared. Don't be scared of the digital world and social media. It's here. It's here to stay and your child is inhabiting that world already. Um, If you are scared, you won't be able to parent very well on this. Um, But if you are, if you have got concerns, take them seriously. Just the same as when your child was is really little, you don't just open the front door the minute they learn to walk and say, off you go, out <laughs> into the world. Um, you know, you, you first of all insist that they hold your hand as you walk along the street. And at that time, you're teaching them about road safety and what to look out for and that they have to cross the road safely and carefully. And then there's that gradual process where now they can walk along without holding your hand, but you're still there. Or, you know, they can walk to the park on their own eventually, but you stand at the end of the street and just check that they can cross the road safely. Well, it's just the same in the digital world. I think a lot of parents open up the laptop and go to their child, off you go. Mm. Um, It's our job as parents to hold their hand as they go into that world initially, to be there, to be present. And boring as it may be for you, that's your job. Mm. And if you're not sure how to keep safe, then find out. It's that again is your parenting job. And the, and luckily, there are so much, so, so many good resources online yeah. teaching you as a parent what you need. You know, if your child is on Instagram, then you need to find out. I mean, what I did is when any of my children started a platform, the rule in our house was that I had to go on the platform too and that they had to friend me. Um, and so I could kind of um, be there and keep an eye. Uh, never make the mistake of commenting on your child's feed. Um, (laughs) Be there and be invisible, Um, but just keep an eye. And it does mean putting in the time and it is boring scrolling through all those emojis and the yeah and the what's up and and, uh, all the rest of it. But that is your job. So just because you can't see it, you can't see the road and you can't see the cars thundering past, they're still there. Um, They're still out there. And um, every family has to navigate, find their way of navigating this in a way that suits them. So it's not just about there is a set of rules you can download and follow. It's that um, you need to figure out some some children are more influenced by social media than others. Some are more prone to become kind of 
I don't want to use the word addicted, but I can't think of the other word that I want to use. So let's call it addicted. Mm. They get they get. Well, I stuck think that is it. actually the right word, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Before we start talking about the children being addicted, let's just take a look at the parents. parents. Yeah. Yes. What are you doing? Are you the minute you wake up? Are you just you know checking your emails or mm-hmm. or having a little scroll through Facebook? Are your notifications pinging off through the day and calling your attention? What is your child learning from you? Your most powerful influence over this is your own behavior and and be congruent you know just because for you it's work and so it's important seems important none of what they're doing is any less important to them so whilst it might just be youtube or tiktok or whatever that you think is trivial um uh it's it's not to them so whatever you want to teach them you need to get your own Mm. social media hygiene in place and and also talk about it. You see, the thing is, is just the same way as you teach your child the Green Cross code and how to cross the road, teach your child by by explaining to them. So for example, I know that when we first went into the first lockdown in March, a lot of parents, because of their fear, started checking the news line, the news media Mm. constantly. And um and it coincided with the children's education going online and their social lives going online. So it all actually went a bit out the window, all the kind of normal ground rules and the and it all went a bit, you know, into 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 kind of like an, a boundaryless, um, both for the adults and for the children. So in the parenting courses that I that I started running during lock, that first lockdown, what a lot of the parents had to do is actually make it a bit more explicit and explain to their child, right, I've noticed that the way I'm dealing with my anxiety is to keep checking the news line. I'm actually going to go cold turkey. I'm not going to check it from morning till night for this day and see how I feel. Yeah. What are you? What do you find you're now kind of a bit hooked on yeah. that, that that you might want to scale back on? So we have to put the checks and, and, and balances inside the child because, um, of course, we're not going to be there all the time. And, and all of this is age appropriate. So what you'll permit a six-year-old to do online is very different from a 16-year-old. I would, a word of warning though, it's much easier to to kind of move the the boundary and extend it to give greater freedom that it, than it is to rein it in. <laughs> so yeah. start with tighter guidelines than you think maybe are fair so that your child can push against them and you can relax them a little bit yeah. to a place <laughs> that actually you would have decided anyway. Mm. Um, and certainly m- my um, and this is really difficult, I think, but something that I think makes things a lot easier is turn your Wi-Fi off at night mm. because a lot of children are getting sleep deprived because they are lying in bed under the covers, staying online. There's a lot of pressure on them to do that. It's very hard for yes. them um, to, to say, oh, I'm going to sleep now. Yeah. Um, and it is quite, you do get hooked in and maybe no no screens in the bedroom even, mm. um, which is difficult if your child is doing their homework up and they've got a desk in the room. Um, but certainly when my our children were younger, we made sure that all screens were in places where adults could pass by and just check and see what was go- what, what was on there. Mm. Um, for everyone, you'll find all of this guidance. There are a million different ways of of, of getting advice online for this. And you're, you and your, any other adult you're living with are going to need to kind of agree what you're going to create as the culture in your home for online activities. I think that's a great word actually you just added in there, which is the culture. It, it is about reflecting on that. I mean, I, I want to come on as we wrap up to talk about your parenting workshops actually, but just one thing that's really jumped out and struck a chord for me as I've been listening alongside everything else is 
the, the reference to the fact that we as adults will place importance on, I need to just check this because it's a business or it's a work-related call or text. And we forget, as you said so beautifully, that actually their world is their world. So although it might not appear important to us, it's just as important as our call we were expecting from the bank manager or whoever it was. And that's a nice takeaway for me from today, just to remind me that, because I do occasionally find myself in that, having that conversation, mm-hmm. I need to take this because it's work or it's business. And yet the kids aren't allowed to do X, Y, and Z on digital media at any one point mm-hmm. in the same period. So I think, thank you for sharing and reminding me of that as well. <laughs> I'm sure there's a few other listeners that are thinking the same thing. And, and I think what we've touched upon is maybe one of the benefits from one of your parenting workshops, Kim, could you just expand on maybe a, a good way to describe it is when parents come to the workshop, what are some of the challenges that they share with you? And not necessarily how does a workshop help them overcome this? Because I imagine that's what purpose of the workshop, but what are the challenges that you do help parents overcome at your parenting workshops? And is, it, is this a new initiative? And if yes, what, what was the reason for putting together parenting workshops alongside working with young teenage girls? Well, I've always worked with the parents of the children because you are the most powerful influence on their lives. Mm. And so um, any work that I'm doing with a child, I mean, that's something that when we train Rights for Girls facilitators, it's one of our tenets, if you like, is never step in between child and parent. You're working alongside them and with them. And of course, we work with a whole variety of different parents and parenting styles. When when we went into lockdown in March, we had... um, a large number of girls joining together groups happening around the country around the world actually and and immediately we had to we had to stop them um right at a time when the children needed that they needed the support that we were yeah, offering and providing. So the first thing we did is we went online. We were very we were already used to being online because we have facilitators all around the world. We supervise them and we do a certain amount of the training online. Although I would have to say the training to train to be a facilitator is a two year long training which does involve twenty seven residential days. So it's a very in depth training, but. We were familiar with online. We went online with the girls, um, and initially, there, you know, they were just really relieved to see each other and to to, to hear from their facilitator. But very quickly, we realised that actually we couldn't continue to give them the kind of support we wanted to be able to give them online because they were saturated. Yeah. School went online. Their social life went online. They they didn't they didn't need any more online anything, and there it is very limited. I think children's ability to connect online is very different from adults' ability to connect online. And we just noticed that actually the best way we could support the girls actually is we started writing them letters, real proper letters that went into envelopes with stamps and then were delivered through their front doors. So we started writing to the girls on a monthly basis and pivoted to um, the most powerful way we could support the children was to actually support the parents. And that's where the online parenting series was born. And what we found was that, actu- that, that if by supporting the parents um, in, in what had now become a full-time 24-hour, you know, seven-day-a-week parenting job was going to have a huge impact on the children. What do we cover in the series? We cover whatever is a challenge for you in the life in your life at the moment. It's it's actually designed around research that has been done um, at the Anna Freud Institute on children in crisis. Okay. So the research. So each session, uh, there's a little bit of 
very practical but but um, theoretical research that gives you some indication as to what do children most need in times of crisis? What do they need to come through it, through times of difficulty, intact? Because what's extraordinary is some children can go through wartime even and come through and be relatively unscathed and other children will go through exactly the same experience and be really deeply traumatized and very affected. So what I wanted to do was to give parents tools and the knowledge and the understanding of what they could do to to help them to parent their children through this really challenging time and for their child to emerge relatively intact. Now, of course, it can apply to a pandemic, but it can also apply to a family crisis or an individual's crisis within the family. Parenting through difficult times needs certain tools and techniques, which which is what we go through in the series. which are applicable to to kind of you know a crisis on a macro scale or on a micro family scale and the most important aspect of the series is that each parent each person is given time to take that tool or take that technique and adapt it to make it suit and fit them and their family um so each person can bring their own individual particular circumstances and and more than anything else what the feedback that i've been getting is parents also feel that shared support with each other that they're not alone that they that I think many of us imagined that everybody else was coping better than we were <laughs> and of course it's really really reassuring to hear that <laughs> from other parents that True. you know we all have our moments when we just think you know I think I'm going to pack my bags and leave this house <laughs> I can't do this anymore or you know and and the, and really also learn from each other so so um during the course of the series they might hear from another parent something that's happening in their home which hasn't yet happened for them but actually does happen further down the line maybe when their child is that same age so we learn from each other as well we learn from and it's the shared expertise it's not just me the expert sitting there with all the answers I don't have all the answers I'm afraid but we all have them within ourselves especially when we kind of take some time out yeah um, I I think at this moment in time as well Kim that where parents are now turned people are much more comfortable turning to the computers to watch and attend a workshop. Uh, you know, we're in a period of maybe another couple of months where there's a lot of availability of time to do that. So it's, I, I really do believe it's a good time for people to, to go into this space and learn and be open to self-study again and connect in a different way. Ideal. It, it, Kim, is the learning done uh, recorded? Is it live? Is it a combination? Just so the listeners are aware. Yeah, so there are two forms of the online workshop. One of them is a is a recorded course that, of course, then you can do in your own time when you have time. And that takes you through, that's a slightly longer course, and it takes you through um, a series of tools and techniques. And what I would advise is that you leave a week or so between each module so that you have a chance to kind of try it out mm. and, and find out how it works for you and your family. The other version is a live interactive course with me. Um, and that's over three weeks. Uh, we have a, a, a one and a half or two hour session together with um, in a small group of 10 10 other parents. And then in between times, there's a Facebook group so that conversation can carry on between the live sessions. Uh, and I'll also drop a couple of videos in there, which summarize uh, what we've covered and answer some of your questions. So that's a more interactive and uh, intense course in a way, which happens at a particular time, or there's the online recorded course, which you can then do in your own time. Fantastic. What I'll do is I'll put that 
in the show notes. What I'll do, I'll put the website and also links to these individual courses in the show notes so the listeners have easy access. Parenting, looking for the parenting workshop can get straight to that. And if they're looking for the rights for passage, whether they're looking for the book, they have easy access to that as well. So listeners at home, I shall put that in the show notes for you. And to- there's a map on the website as well, ah, which... Ah. Um, which shows you where all the girls journeying together groups are running around the world. Oh, yes. yeah. So um, if you are, if you do have a, a girl who's 10 or 11 years old, who's in year six, who you think might like to try out girls journeying together, actually, I have to let you know that whilst it will be parents who bring the girls to the group, very important that it's the girl herself who mm. gets to decide whether or not it's for her. Yeah. So each group starts with a free trial session. Um, your job as the parent is to get your daughter there, however you can, bribe <laughs> her, bring her. Yeah. Um, and we, our work then, our job then, is to give her an experience of what girls journeying together is like. It's not to put any pressure on her to join. We want the girls to have a chance to know what they're saying yes or no to. So whilst in the area where I live, it's now it's it's kind of well known and I get girls either siblings, their older sister did it, or they've got friends mm. um, who they've heard about it and they they bring their mums to it. Around the country when it's not so well known, it'll probably be the parent who brings the girl, but then the girl who will decide whether or not it's for her. I have girls who travel. I'm, I'm down in Sussex. I have a girl at the moment who travels to one of my groups. She sets off um, the night before from Cornwall Oh to come to my group once a month. Amazing. So don't don't dismay if there isn't a group within half an hour of you. We're still training women. We want to kind of, eventually we'd like for there to be a girls joining together group in every town and city in the world mm. so that it's available to all girls. A bit like yoga, you know, it's it's everyone's heard of it and, and most people have given it a try at some point. So don't dismay if there's not a group um, right close to you, I have mothers who drive several hours to bring their girl to girls group. And because the mothers meet at the same time, there's something for you to do at that same time. The girls love knowing that their mums are meeting at the same time. And I also, um, you'll find that you are given a few questions as a mother that that means you're walking the same territory as your daughter is walking in during the girls journey together group. Fathers, um, whilst you can't join the mother's circle, because of course what the mothers are partly talking about is their own first period and their own body image Mm. or their own kind of relationships with women. um, Fathers often are the ones who might bring their girl to girls group. You are very welcome. We are delighted that you recognize the importance of it. Mm. Um, And very quickly, not so much in lockdown, but very quickly, girls and mothers will start to want to socialize outside of the girls growing together group sessions. And that's when the fathers are really pulled in and welcomed into that kind of growing community of support. That's fantastic. I mean, I I know my daughter's going through this experience at the moment, so I get to hear a little bit when she chooses to share and certainly my partner does as well. So I can vouch for the experience and having seen so many friends have their daughters go through it. If you're listening, it's an absolutely amazing experience. And I guess that kind of leads me to thank you so much for all of of the energy and the enthusiasm and the passion and the insights you've brought to the table kim during this it's been gosh hour and 40 minutes amazing it's gone quick hasn't it just we've sort of we started with rights for girls maybe we could just finish off for our listeners and, and either for the young girls or for the parents that are listening are there any any sort of words of wisdom or tips that we can give them at this stage when they leave the podcast that a step closer to starting that that journey from from your perspective, particularly whilst we're in lockdown, are there any quick wins that our listeners can implement over the next week with their kids that would 
reconnect or build a stronger relationship. I'll, I'll leave it broad for you to talk into that space. Yes, certainly. If I were to pick one, two, three, three things, can I have three things? Yes, <laughs> please do. Yeah. Okay. So the first one I would say is find little, little pockets of parent-child time. It doesn't have to be big pockets and it doesn't have to be big things that you do together, but um, it will go a long way to keeping the relationship warm and open because we will get on each other's nerves and we will irritate each other. And it's quite difficult being a parent and a teacher and everything in your child's life while we're all together in, in one, in one um, building. So look for moments where you can have just precious times with your child. A lot of children, it can be at bedtime. It, it can be the time when we adults, we want to switch off and we want to kind of our children to kind of just give us a bit of a break. But that can often be quite a precious, special time. Just give them an extra 10 minutes. That will go a long way to nourishing the relationship, which will get stretched and, and challenged um, in the, over the next few weeks. Second thing I would say is never make your child wrong. Always treat their behavior as information, treat their behavior as communication. And if you in that moment are triggered, take care of yourself first. You might need to just remove yourself for a moment um, so that you can then get to an adult place of thinking, so what does this behavior tell me? What is my child telling me they need? What are they communicating? And then the third thing would be self-care is childcare. I think it's really important that we parents take care of ourselves through this time. Um, we cannot be the best parents that we want to be when we are in need ourselves. We need to nourish ourselves um, and whatever that means for you. And I know that we're all restricted and the things that maybe brought us respite or nourished us or revived us or replenished us, we're, we're challenged to find those things. But Take that responsibility because not only are you teaching your child something so important for adult life, because they're watching us and thinking, how do we act in a crisis? We are the adults. We're showing them how we cope in a crisis. It does not mean that we get everything right and that we don't get stressed and that we don't lose it sometimes. That's natural. But what are we doing to take care of ourselves? Please give yourself permission to shut yourself in the bathroom with a book mm. or take yourself off for a walk or whatever it is, whether it be your morning practice, your morning routine or whatever indulgence that feels healthy and nourishing to you, make sure that every single day holds some of that. Well, thank you, Kim, for those three gifts. Absolutely. So I've got the difficult task of closing <laughs> out this podcast. I think this is so, so timely and uh, I'm fortunate as a parent to be a co-host on this podcast, listening to everything you've shared with us, Kim. So thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart. And I know there'll be lots of parents out there, all parents who are thinking about being parents, uh, millennials who have nieces, nephews, uh, younger people in their life, and maybe they didn't understand the importance of that time they spend with them, plus those, uh, the, the idea of understanding their behavior and even taking care of themselves. So no doubt it would be amazing to have you back talking on the subject. I, my gut feel is parenting work, yes. you know, diving into that wider topic of parenting. So it would be, be lovely to have you back if you're up for it, Kim. I think that subject alone could, could easily fulfill a whole podcast. Yes, that'd be another podcast topic. But outside that, a massive thank you for myself and Ro. To the listeners at home, 
This is myself, Ro, and Kim signing out. We shall see you on the next episode. As always, everything discussed, all relevant links will be on the show notes at cicardo.com. Till then, we'll see you. Hello, it's Dr. Rowe here. Harms and I would like to both personally thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Cicado Show. And if you've gained just one insight, something positive that you're able to use on a personal, on a professional level to help your life and maybe other people's lives, then please complete an important action for us which takes less than just two minutes. Please become a supporter of the podcast by going to cicado.com and as a thank you, you'll get access to exclusive supporter perks. And don't forget to simply subscribe to the show, share this product with loved ones, and we would love if you would take a moment to give us a review and let us know just how amazing this episode was. Thanks again for listening. This is Dr. Owen Harms signing out. We'll see you on the next episode.